The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Hey, Park Church and others, guests, friends. It's great to be with you guys. Uh, bring you greetings from the place where everybody wishes they lived on the Front Range. That's Omaha, Nebraska. So... You guys are the destination. You guys are where everybody in my church wishes they were. They just, for some reason, ended up in Omaha. So uh, it's great to be with you. It's great to be at a church that has a normal English name. Uh, in 2005, it was really cool to name your church with other languages. So we chose the name Corum Deo, which is Latin. And I thought that was really cool at the time. And there was, there's like deep meaning to it. It's like a phrase that comes out of the Reformation. However, no one in our city knows what that means. And so people regularly say, did you say Corndale? What, what church? So it's very confusing. I don't recommend it. So Park Church, very nice, simple, clean, excellent name. And it's great to be with you guys. We are um, friends from afar, part of the same network, and I uh, have, have followed your progress here closely and just excited to be with you tonight. We're here to talk about um, the gospel and how it transforms relationships. And Here's what's fascinating to me is I don't think it's an accident the moment at which we are gathering to talk about this. Um, Even in light of the song we just sang together, I think there's actually some really significant opportunities ahead if the church will be the church in meaningful ways. In fact, here's the question I want to ask you to sort of get us going tonight, to get us thinking together about this. What is the primary means for Christian impact on public life? What's the primary way Christians can have impact on public life? I think that for about the last 40 years in America, the answer to that question, at least for many, has been political activism. Uh, That's how we got the religious right and the religious left. Um, That the way for Christians, the primary way Christians can impact public life and sort of the direction of things in society is through political maneuvering, political activism. And here's what's fascinating to me. This week, I think, sounded the final death knell for that way of thinking. I don't think it's too much to say that. On Monday night, Russell Moore, who's one of the um, very influential figures in sort of evangelical Christianity, uh, head of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, delivered a major address in New York City. And the title of his address was, Can the Religious Right Be Saved? Sort of a play on words there, if you catch it. And cultural critic Rod Dreher called this a generation-defining speech and a eulogy for the religious right. Because here's what Russell Moore was essentially saying. He, he very much believes in theological and even cultural conservatism. Uh, he points out there's a massive surge of evangelical vitality right now in young, thriving congregations like Park Church, like Coram Deo, churches all over the country where there's thriving evangelical vitality. But what has died Russell Moore believes during this election season in particular is politicized religious conservatism. The kind that, in Russell Moore's words, 
presents every presidential election as an Armageddon from which we cannot recover. And you guys are probably tired of that rhetoric because you've been hearing it for about four or five presidential elections now, right? And so here's what that means in light of what's happening even right now this week in this election season. It means the time is ripe for us to think about a different answer to the question, what's the primary means for Christians to influence public life? And that's why I'm so excited about what we're doing here this weekend because I think this has implications not just for what it means for us to be the church, but I think it has implications for what it means for us to be Christians in the world. Um, It gives us a chance to consider what a now-deceased British theologian named Leslie Newbigin said a few decades ago. Here was his answer to the question of the primary way Christians can influence society. Leslie Newbigin wrote, the primary means for a Christian impact on public life is the Christian congregation. He went on to say this, I'm not denying the importance of evangelistic campaigns, Bible distribution, conferences, books, but I am saying that these are all secondary. They have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back to a believing community. In other words, here's what Nubigen is saying to us. He's saying the kind of community we have in our churches matters. It matters deeply. In a postmodern, post-Christian, post-everything world, the quality of Christian relationships is a primary aspect of our witness. Before people are interested at all in what we have to say or in the substance of the gospel, they have to first see a genuineness of relationship and of community that suggests that there's something deep and meaningful happening among us. You might say it this way, is the gospel that we preach and proclaim lived out in our life together? Does the quality of our relationships lend credibility to or steal credibility from our message? That question, friends, is more important than it's ever been. And that's what we're here to talk about over the next couple of evenings. Our life together says something about the gospel. The question is, what is it saying? What does our life together say about the gospel? So, here's what I want to do as we sort of get started tonight. I'm going to lay some simple theological groundwork, and I'm going to focus on a very specific theological point in the pages of the New Testament. And I think Scotty's going to paint for us a little bigger uh, and more holistic picture of sort of biblical theology. And by the way, what a a treat for me to get to share uh, this stage and this conference with my friend Scotty. Uh, it's just a real privilege. Uh, I, I appreciate him and love him, and it's a lot of fun for us to be able to sort of be here together, uh, laboring alongside one another. So if you have a Bible, here's what I want you to do. I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. And I want to begin by just observing a very simple statement from Jesus that I think sort of needs to slow us down, Okay? Luke chapter 6, verse 32. 
Here's what our Savior says to us. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good. And lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High. For He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. There's obviously a lot we could say about these verses. There's a lot that Jesus is packing into these very dense observations. But here's the point that I want to make. There's a lowest common denominator kind of human community that doesn't take the gospel at all in order to experience, right? Jesus is saying there's a kind of tit for tat, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours, we like the same things, we're into the same stuff, it's mutually beneficial for us to be friends with each other. There's a kind of relationships that are built around that kind of calculus that don't require any sort of knowledge or understanding or depth or experience of the gospel in order to experience there's sort of a lowest common denominator form of human community that jesus says if that's all that's present in our churches so what that says nothing distinct and nothing unique and nothing profound and so i think as we read those words from jesus we first of all need to hear what he says and step back and say okay so so what jesus is saying to us is this if when people experience our churches If when people experience Christian community, all they perceive and see and experience is sort of the same kind of community that they had in their fraternity in college, or that they have watching the football game at the pub with some friends, or that they have in a book group, then then so what? Jesus is telling us this. He's saying there's something distinctive or unique about the kind of community the gospel has come to shape jesus is saying that the kingdom of god has come to bring a certain kind of community that goes beyond these kind of baseline lowest common denominator human relationships there should be a quality and a depth and a meaning and a significance of relationship that we experience as those who have embraced the gospel that goes deeper and further than this base simple human community it's not that this kind of community by the way is bad i don't think jesus is saying this is wrong this is evil it's wrong to have friends who root for the same sports team it's wrong to sort of have you know make common cause with people in society i think he's just saying if that's all that we have to offer as christians then we're not saying anything distinct or unique there's a distinctive kind of community that only the gospel can create and i want to show you tonight what it is about the gospel that creates that How does the gospel, rightly understood, get us to a kind of community, a kind of relationship that's beyond what sort of our natural human inclination would create? What does the gospel do in us that opens the way to a whole different kind of community? All right? So let let me observe with you one of the baseline relational problems in the entire New Testament, okay? Um, Just sort of doing some New Testament theology here. If, If you've read 
much of the New Testament at all, you've probably figured out that one of the baseline problems in community in the New Testament is the relationship between Jew and Gentile. Right? Have you caught this? This comes up over and over and over again in the New Testament. You have the Jewish people who are religiously scrupulous, who come from a particular religious tradition, are committed to the law of God. There's a particular culture that obtains within their sort of frame of reference. And then you have Gentiles who are polytheists, pagans, uh, idolaters in the eyes of the Jewish people. And there's all kinds of ethnic, social, relational, religious tension between these two groups. This is the nature of society in the first century. And one of the great problems that the New Testament writers are always coming back to is if Jesus Christ has brought Jew and Gentile into one family, how do we continue to work out the relational dynamics that are there that are challenging? Um, How does the gospel reconcile Jew and Gentile into one new family? And, And we know that it's not as simple as, well, just believe the gospel and everything will work out. You know why? Because we have this thing called the New Testament. And one of the problems the New Testament is solving, one of the the reasons the writers are writing many of the epistles in the New Testament is because it's not quite as simple as just believe in Jesus and everything works out. Right? There's, There's still two cultures, two backgrounds, two societal sort of frames of reference that are being smashed together that creates all kinds of tension and conflict and stereotypes and people's own sin that needs to be worked through. And so consistently the New Testament writers are applying the gospel to this tension, this issue of Jew and Gentile. Let's just do a little bit of Bible work. Go to Acts chapter 11. Let's just look at a couple places where this problem sort of rears its head, okay? Acts chapter 11. Verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, so primarily Jewish part of the world, heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. See, Peter had sort of committed a social taboo here. He had stepped outside some things the Jewish culture held very closely and seriously, and so they're upset with Peter. But what happens is Peter relates from here forward in the the chapter this experience he had of having a dream where the Holy Spirit comes and speaks to him and clearly compels him to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles, and he goes to Cornelius' house, and he preaches the gospel, and they respond in faith, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And as Peter narrates these things... Acts 11, verse 18, when they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Like, wow, really? The Gentiles too. Right? So you see how big a deal this is in the early church. And then if you go over a few books to the book of Galatians, um, we read again about Peter. And this sort of famous confrontation that Paul has with Peter in Galatians chapter 2, it says this. When Cephas, that's Peter, Galatians 2.11. When Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I, Paul, who's writing here, opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, 
how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So what happens here is Peter, in, in, as some Jewish people come to the church, he sort of shrinks back, um, sort of disassociates with the Gentiles and creates a problem in the community, and Paul has to rebuke him. Um, I'm just going to these two vignettes to show you this, this whole reality of the relationship between Jew and Gentile is a significant societal community problem within the New Testament church. And so the question is, how do the New Testament apostles solve this problem? How do they, how do they try to create a countercultural, counterintuitive, gospel-portraying kind of community in the early church? Well, quite simply, they do it by applying the gospel. Um, by pointing to the implication of the gospel for community. By saying, hey, here's what the gospel is, and here's what that means for your life together. And that's exactly what we want to do here this weekend. In other words, the deeper our apprehension of the gospel, the more it will be reflected in our relationships. The, The more deeply the gospel goes into our souls, the more you'll be able to tell in the quality of our life together. Like, just think about it this way. Sin divides us. The gospel unites us. Sin separates. The gospel reconciles. Sin wounds. The gospel heals. Sin fragments us. The gospel integrates us. Sin turns us inward. The gospel turns us outward. So the more the gospel is actually deeply experienced and known among us, the primary way you'll be able to see it is in the quality of our relationships, the depth and the significance of the community that we have with one another. Um, And there's one particular aspect of the gospel that I think is really important and that I think the New Testament apostles consistently apply. It's only one aspect of the gospel. It's only one way to think about the gospel. But it's one very important facet of the gospel that the New Testament writers apply that I think, as we grasp it, really goes to work on the things that divide us, the things that keep us guarded, self-protective, and closed off from one another. And here's the facet of the gospel I'm talking about. It's the aspect or the facet of righteousness. Now, I know righteousness is a very sort of theological, religious-sounding word, right? But if you can get past sort of the, the churchy overtones of that word, think about it for a minute. How good does it feel to be right and to know that you're right? I mean, um, maybe I'm just more wicked and sinister and twisted than you guys, but I really love to be right. Man, when I'm in an argument and it turns out that I'm right, that makes my day better. It shouldn't, but it does. That's how twisted I am. So like, for instance, last week, um, my wife was looking for my son's Latin book and she said, hey, Bob, have you seen the Latin book? And I said, I think it's over there on the bookshelf. And she said, no, I looked over there and I couldn't find it. And I was like, you want to bet? And so what did I do? I got up, went over there, went to the bookshelf, looked around, I was like, ha, it's right here. <laughs> yeah, I was right, wasn't I? Right? Like, I, I'm twisted like that. I, there, there's something in me, and I think it's probably in you too, that we really like to be right and feel right and look good. And that hunger, that craving, that desire to be in the right is what the Bible 
is referring to. It's this deeply wired thing in us that craves righteousness. I mean, just think about it that way. this way. Would you rather be right and look good or be wrong and look bad? Don't even have, you don't even have to think about it, right? You'd rather be right and look good um, to others. That's what righteousness deals with with being in the right. And here's what the New Testament shows us. It shows us there's two kinds of righteousness. And and the difference between them is the difference between a community that's self-centered and self-preserving and a community that's other-centered and humble and hospitable. Let's look briefly at them together. I I know we're doing a lot of Bible passages, but hang with me. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. I want us to look at how the New Testament describes these two kinds of righteousness and the implications they have for community. So we're coming into the middle of the big argument, but Romans chapter 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writing says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, he's talking about his fellow Jewish people, is that they might be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, and he goes on to quote a number of quotes from the Old Testament and and apply them. Here's what I want you to see. Notice he says, he speaks of two kinds of righteousness. A righteousness of their own, versus God's righteousness, a righteousness that is based on the law versus a righteousness that's based on faith. Um, To to keep it simple and to create a little bit of a a wordplay that I think will help you remember this, I want to refer to these as achieved righteousness and received righteousness. Achieved righteousness and received righteousness. Okay? Um, the Bible also calls them works righteousness or law righteousness. We might even say self-righteousness versus the righteousness of grace, the righteousness that comes by faith, the righteousness that, ours, that is ours through faith in Christ. Um, here's how achieved righteousness works. And remember, Paul's writing specifically of how it works within the Jewish people and in Jewish cultural context. But you don't have to be Jewish to have works righteousness. This is a core reality of human experience and of the human heart achieved righteousness works this way there's some standard or some rule that i meet and so i meet it and therefore i'm in the right because i did it right and then what usually happens is (laughs) i judge others who didn't meet that same standard that i did right um This is what the Jews were doing to the Gentiles, and it's what you do every day without maybe even realizing it. Like, again, let me give you an example from my own life, okay? I'm a very tidy person. I like to have things in their place. I like things clean, neat, organized. My books are uh, according to the Dewey Decimal System in my library. I'm, I'm I'm you know, 
I'm a little bit of an organized person, okay? Um, I, I really like things to be that way, tidy, organized, neat, and clean. And so here's what I do. Anybody who's like that, guess what? They're righteous. And anybody who's not like that, guess what they are? Unrighteous. And I, in fact, I, I sort of judge people that aren't like that. And so, for instance, in my household, right, when things start to get messy, when my kids are sort of leaving things around the house, guess what happens? It starts to tweak me, right? And I start getting, I, I start getting agitated. And I, I want to sort of demand that my children and that my wife sort of clean everything and tidy everything and neaten everything. Why? Because that's a rule that I have of how the world should be. And because I'm that way, I feel righteous and justified in being that way, and I feel like other people are in the wrong since they're not that way, even though there's no ethical rule in the Bible that says you should be tidy. But you know what? I prefer that, and so of course it's better to be tidy than not tidy. It's more appropriate socially to be tidy than not tidy. Wouldn't life be better if everybody was like this? You see what I'm doing? I'm applying a standard of righteousness, and listen, you do this, maybe in not the weird way that I do, but in some way, there's areas of your life where you operate the exact same way, where there's a standard you have of what's right and good and, and what counts as sort of, you know, basic human decency, and when other people don't do that, you tend to look down on them, you tend to judge them, you tend to condemn them, you tend to frown upon them. Uh, here, I'll give you another example from my own life, right? I uh, planted Quarmdale Church 11 years ago and still pastor it today. And, and listen, you guys who have been around Park Church since the beginning, you know that planting a new church is hard work, man. It takes a lot of toil and labor and effort, and there's a lot of prayer and work and sweat and tears that go into that. And so you know what? Since I've done that, guess who I tend to listen to? Anybody else who's also done that. And guess who I don't listen to? Other people that haven't done that right? So like if you, if you planted a church, I'm really interested in what you have to say because you, you've lived that story and I know you've gone through it. But, but if you wrote a book and that's neat, but you haven't ever planted a church, guess what? Well, I'm sure you're nice, but I'm not really going to listen to you very deeply, right? Because there's a standard of sort of righteousness that you haven't measured up to. It's sort of church planting righteousness. You don't even have to be religious to do this. Right? This is this achieved righteousness, this self-righteousness, this works righteousness. It's not even religious. Uh, in fact, a couple years ago, I was invited in, in the city of Omaha to be the lone sole Christian speaker at the Atheist and Secularist Alliance Conference for like a five-state area. Okay, so I'm in the room with hundreds and hundreds of vocal militant atheists. And it was a lot of fun, you guys. It was one of the most fun experiences I've had. But here's what I noticed. It's not just Christians that are self-righteous. It's not just Christians that have a sense that they're better than other people. Guess what it felt like to be the lone Christian in that room? It felt like a lot of condemnation and a lot of judgment and a lot of people sort of taking pride in how atheistic and how irreligious they were. And you know what was funny about it? It was almost just as fundamentalist as being in a really fundamentalist church just in a different way. All human beings are prone to this self-righteousness, this achieved righteousness. Let me give you some types of righteousness. Those of you who have done uh, the Gospel Center Life, which I know you guys use here as sort of an intro study, these will be familiar to you, but let me just tick off some of these for you. Intellectual righteousness. 
I'm better read, I'm more intelligent, I'm more culturally savvy than other people, and I look down on people who aren't. Career righteousness. I've achieved a certain level of success in my career, and so I sort of look down on those who haven't achieved that same level of success. Work ethic righteousness. I'm a hard worker, I get things done, I put in a lot of hours, and if you don't, you're not as good a person. Parenting righteousness. I do things right as a parent. Other people don't. If you don't, I look down on you. Flexibility righteousness. I'm very flexible. I'm very open. I'm very spontaneous. I really love when people just drop by. And man, if you're rigid and the kind of person that has to have things on your calendar, what's wrong with you? Mercy righteousness. I'm the one around here who really cares about the the needy and the hurting and the disadvantaged. And if you don't care about that as deeply as I do, you're not a good person. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable toward those who disagree with me. I'm great at listening and evaluating and, and hearing other points of view. I find great pride in the fact that I have a really diverse group of friends who don't think like me. And if you don't have a group of friends like that, if you're not as open-minded and tolerant of others, you're just not a very well-developed human being. Here's what this achieved righteousness breeds in a community. Competition and comparison. You see how it does that? Right? If I've achieved a standard, and now you haven't achieved that standard, I either compare myself to you and judge myself favorably, or if you're better than me in that area, now I sort of compare myself to you and judge myself negatively. And so we can't ever have real, meaningful, deep friendship because you're always someone to be competed with or compared to. You guys know how this works. You know what it's like to walk into a room and sort of size people up or feel like you're being sized up and sort of evaluated where you fit in and how you connect or don't connect, how you relate or don't relate, how you measure up or don't measure up. Friends, here's the point I'm making. The kind of baseline human community that Luke 6 is talking about, where we just sort of take care of people who take care of us, like people who are like us, respect people who respect us, that's all rooted in achieved righteousness, in self-righteousness. If this is the only kind of righteousness we have, which it is apart from the gospel, then this is the only thing we're capable of. We're playing this game of competition and comparison. And, and here's, the, here's the funny thing. <laughs> Achieved righteousness is actually not even righteousness. It's actually unrighteous. That's what Jesus is going to go on to tell us. Do you know why? Because it prevents you from really loving others. How can I love you if I'm comparing myself with you? How can I love you if I'm competing with you? How can I love you if I'm judging whether you live up to my standard or not? I, I can't. I can fake like I love you. I can pretend to love you. I can do my best to have happy feelings about you. But at the end of the day, it's impossible for me to love you as Christ has loved you because I'm comparing myself with you and competing with you based on my standard of righteousness. And here's the beautiful thing. The gospel operates on a totally different wavelength. 
The gospel introduces us to a whole different kind of righteousness that's so completely different that it opens up a whole different way of relating to one another. The gospel calls us to face our unrighteousness and to submit to a whole different vision of righteousness. A whole different way of being in the right. So here's what Paul will tell us in Romans chapter 3. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. Paul's going to flatten us all with coming face to face with how unrighteous our false self-achieved righteousness is. And he's going to invite us to something that's absolutely better in every way. So in Romans 3.21, it says this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift. See what he's saying is, look, all of your achieved righteousness, all of your attained righteousness, all the, all the ways that you think you measure up and the standards by which you judge others, guess what? They're all unrighteousness. They put us all under condemnation before God. And yet here's the good news. God has made known a righteousness that's utterly a gift. All have sinned, all have fallen short, and all can be justified freely by grace. The opposite of achieved righteousness is received righteousness, gift righteousness, grace righteousness. It's not based on our achievements. It's not based on what we do to earn it. It's based freely on the mercy and grace of God in Jesus Christ. And listen... This kind of gift righteousness, this kind of grace righteousness, the reason this is such good news, the reason we need to do the mental work and the theological work to really understand the righteousness that God gives us in the gospel is this, because it's extravagant righteousness. It's, it's righteousness that overflows in generosity to others. Because it's a gift. Because it's received, not achieved. Let's go back to my example of um, cleanliness, tidiness, right? Right? Easy for me to achieve. Why? Because I'm wired that way. I like things that way. Harder for my wife and my children to achieve because they're not wired in the same way. They don't sort of see the world the same way I do. So guess what? It's a standard that's easy for me to meet and harder for the people around me to meet. And guess what that guarantees? It guarantees I always feel more righteous than them. There's always judgment, condemnation, hostility, separation, division. But when before the mercy of God, I'm humbled to realize, gosh, you know what that really is? It's just another manifestation of self-righteousness. When I see God doesn't favor me for being more tidy, there's nothing in the Bible that says if you have your books in Dewey Decimal System order, you're a more holy, righteous person. It's not in there. So when I begin to see that all the ways that I judge and condemn others in just dumb, stupid little ways like that are actually odious to God. 
And that what he's asking me to do and inviting me to do is to humble myself and receive the merciful, gracious, free righteousness of Jesus Christ based on nothing other than the free gift of God. You know what that does for me? You know what it creates? Humility and hospitality. It opens up a whole new way of relating to one another. Because I realize, okay, you know, you know, what, you know what gets me in the door to this righteousness? Nothing. You know what it is? It's the free mercy and grace of God. And so because of that, I'm humbled, and I'm free to dispense that same mercy and grace to others. So whereas achieved righteousness breeds in a community a selfishness, a closedness, a competition and a comparison, received righteousness, grace righteousness, gospel righteousness breeds in a community humility and hospitality and openness and generosity and grace. We don't measure ourselves against one another. We're no longer posturing and pretending and trying to act like we have it together. We're free now to to humble ourselves before one another and to be as hospitable as we can with each other and with the city around us because you know what? We didn't do anything to get ourselves here. It's the mercy and grace of God. Here's all I'm saying. Here's what I'm trying to do in working out these biblical texts with you is to help you see the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ opens up a kind of community that we can't get any other way. It kills our self-righteousness and therefore our comparison and competition with one another, and it opens up the possibility of real, true, deep, meaningful, selfless relationship. And that kind of relationship is the kind, that kind of community is the kind that's counterintuitive to people. That doesn't make any sense. The kind where Republicans and Democrats are together, where Cubs fans and Braves fans are together, or Cubs fans and Indians fans, or Cubs fans and, right, whoever, Rockies fans, I guess you guys are out here, right? That, that whatever the things are that socially sort of put us in this group or that group, under the grace and mercy of God and the gospel, those things just sort of go away. And what we find is deep, meaningful, rich, robust, real community and friendship. Now look, here's the funny thing about this. We have to continually fight for this kind of community. Right? Like, it's not true that just once we see the righteousness that God offers us in the gospel, then, then everything just sorts itself out. But rather, what the New Testament is telling us is, yeah, yeah, so this is true. There's a righteousness of our own that we can sort of exist in, or there's a righteousness from God that we can receive by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. But when we receive that, we have to continue to fight to live in that. Because what? Our hearts are always going to sort of default back to self-righteousness to achieved righteousness, to wanting to measure ourselves against one another and compare ourselves to one another. So we have to continue to fight for not just the initial knowledge of the gospel, but the ongoing apprehension of the gospel so that continually we're humbled and made hospitable toward one another. Friends, when we talk about gospel-centered community or gospel-driven community or gospel-empowered community, this is what we're talking about. The kind of community that fights for a front and center knowledge of the gospel that continually works on us and humbles us and makes us open before one another. So what I'm saying to you is, 
the gospel does transform our relationships. The gospel does create a kind of beauty that we can't get any other way. But only as we go deeply into it, only as we see it applied to the very things in our hearts that keep us divided from one another or self-protective or closed off. And I'm suggesting to you that the primary thing that does that It's just all the ways that we seek to achieve our own righteousness and follow our own standards. Now, another way to say this, and you've probably heard this because this isn't original to me, is we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves constantly. Right? We've got to seek to live in the good of the gospel every day. And as we do that, that's not just individual, but it works itself out into our community. So as I was thinking about these things, here's what I realized, that right now tonight, as we are here and as I'm here serving you right now tonight, my gospel community is meeting in my living room in Omaha, Nebraska. And last night, one of the young men in my gospel community sent me a text message to confess that he had fallen into sexual sin on a trip this week. And really, falling isn't even the right word. He, he walked headlong into sexual sin. And so... so Here's the battle that's going to be going on tonight as I think about my living room right now. I know that young man is going to be feeling unrighteous, probably discouraged, probably ashamed and embarrassed. And so he needs a community to remind him of the scandalous truth of the gospel. That God accepts him not based on his righteousness, but on Christ's. That God's free mercy is still present and available to him. That he didn't fall out of God's favor, but rather that Christ is the one that reconciles and makes him right to God. He needs a community to remind him of that tonight because tonight he's feeling particularly ashamed, embarrassed, and discouraged. He is repentant. At the same time, I realize there's a number of people who are sort of religious people in my gospel community. They have a, a sort of religious sort of morality. They've grown up in church. And they're going to be tempted to respond to that, to his sin in self-righteousness. They're going to be thinking thoughts in their heads like, well, man, I, I'm sorry that happened. I would never do that. Or, well, didn't you have good enough accountability? Or what mistakes did you make? Or how did you get yourself in that situation? Or what, what was wrong with you? And right, They're going to struggle with judgment, condemnation and self-righteousness and so they need a community around them to remind them that self-righteousness is just as ugly as unrighteousness that their tendency in their heart to judge and condemn others is is actually just the same problem with a different expression so they need to be reminded of the grace of god and the gospel at the same time in that same community in my living room right now are non-christians and irreligious people people not coming out of a religious background at all and they're going to be tempted to respond to this young man's sin and confession with cheap grace they're going to want to put a band-aid on and say it's okay we all make mistakes no big deal and they need to be reminded that free grace isn't cheap grace it's costly grace it's it's jesus christ's death 
that secures that grace for us. And so this is an opportunity for them to hear the good news of the gospel in a way that maybe sinks in more deeply and helps compel them toward the cross and the resurrection and true faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why we need to preach the gospel to each other every week. And this is why the gospel at the center and a heart of a community really does transform how we relate to one another. And so friends, tonight, that's all I'm trying to do is just to lay the theological groundwork and say, understanding achieved righteousness and received righteousness is foundational and crucial to understanding what it means for the gospel to go to work in our relationships. Now there's a lot more we can say and will say as we go forward, but I want to anchor us in that as we begin. So let me pray for us and I think we're going to take a break. Father, we confess to you that in our hearts is the specter of self-righteousness. And we confess to you the ways that we protect and isolate ourselves out of a desire to sort of protect our own achieved righteousness and to resist and sort of stay apart from really leaning into the beautiful grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I see that in my own soul. Father, we bring that before you and acknowledge it. And we ask tonight that you'd open up our understanding of grace and of received righteousness in ways that soften us, in ways that gentle us, in ways that create a deeper humility and a deeper hospitality. Father, my prayer, my longing for Park Church Denver and for our other friends who are here from other churches, is that the communities they're a part of, the Christian communities they're a part of, would be so beautiful to the people around them that people are streaming in the doors to to learn what is it that makes this community so rich, so deep, so tight, so committed, so beautiful. So Father, would you take us more deeply into the theology, the depth, the meaning of the gospel to bring about that kind of relational beauty And would you especially do work tonight and tomorrow night to give us traction in that? Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.